This is the safari. Finance and fashion. It's not something that most people think mix very well, but the truth is, is that like any business, fashion companies, retail companies, companies in the creative fields all need to grow. They need balance sheets, they need banking relationships, they need accountants, they need all the things that most consumers will not have access to or see in the face of any brand. And so our next guest, Bill Sussman, the founder and CEO of Threadstone, which is an investment bank, is incredibly well equipped to talk about the plumbing of the corporate finance world as it pertains to brands, fashion, retail, CPG in general. He's recently become quite adept in the beauty field. So we'll be able to talk a lot about all the different ins and outs of financing fashion businesses. Let's get started. All right, Billy, Billy Sussman from Threadstone. Thank you so much for- My pleasure, it's fun to be here. Joining this podcast, uh, welcome to the Safari. So as you know, the Safari is about getting the big thinkers and different fields within our industry. Uh, you're been, you've been an investment banker your whole career. 30 years. 30 years, and you've obviously done a lot of deals at big banks, now your own firm, Threadstone. Give everyone a little bit of background sure. on yourself and Threadstone and so they know uh, where, where you're For coming from. For 20 years, I had the privilege of working at a big uh, capital markets firm, both Solomon Brothers and Merrill Lynch, ran Merrill Lynch's retail consumer group. That gave me tremendous training and exposure to a lot of different aspects of investment banking. In 2012, I wanted, like many of our clients, to be an entrepreneur, and I launched uh, Threadstone. The premise was very straightforward. It was uh, on a very industry-centric basis, giving deep-level um, advice and really working with clients on a lot of their strategic capital needs, whether that could be a sell, sale of a company, an acquisition of a business, capital raise. The markets have dramatically changed even over the last six years since we started. But conceptually, Threadstone today is positioned as an independent boutique investment bank providing advisory service in consumer and retail. And, and so you're laser focused on consumer and retail. And, and so obviously, there, there are big firms who do generalist activity within investment banking. You're very focused on, uh, obviously, the consumer and retail industry at large. W what did you think is some of the, in your experience, because of your focus, uh, the edge that you may get uh, for your clients that maybe some of the bigger guys don't have? I think the industry focus gives a couple things. First of all, I think that when we speak with clients about their problems, we kind of see them across other clients. We can kind of share the experience they're feeling, the pressures they're feeling. We also can get up to speed on their business much faster because we understand it. I think the other metaphor I often like to use is if this were hockey, we see where the puck is going not where the puck is right now. And clients appreciate that, that empathy for the changing landscape and the pressures they're under. So following that puck, therefore, I mean, the role of the investment banker, I mean, has it changed over the years? And do you feel that things have evolved a little bit? Are you having longer term relationships with people? I think that first of all, I think it's very different in a generalist firm from a specialist firm. In a specialist firm, it can be a very long 
duration relationship. The way that we approach it and where I think it's evolved lately, you know, it's 50% financial advisory, it's 20% psychiatrist, 10% <laughs> concierge, it's, you know, 30% handholder. I think that a lot of it is listening to the problems and then coming up with solutions. That's where I think kind of the we try to differentiate ourselves. You know, m one of our favorite uh, meetings is when a client comes in for the first time and says, L let me tell you my problems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, listening and trying to, to sort through that. I think where the role has changed is while the business has a transactional element, at its core, it's very relationship. Mm -hmm. It's building trust. It's having someone share with you kind of where their business is and what no one goes to an investment banker if they don't have a problem to solve. Mm -hmm. There are good problems and there are bad problems, but it's pretty much to solve a problem. And so the perfect cocktail, therefore, is is probably hard to, to look at or hard to describe. But some people come in with a crisis on their hand. They need to raise money by, you know, a month from now and others are incredible growth businesses, presumably that uh, that you need to raise money for and want wonderful valuations. But what is the you know the, the dream I, client? I, I think cocktail is a great word because everything is different and it's got different proportionalities. Generally speaking, I think there are companies that are kind of trending up and there are companies that are trending down. Um, in and to some degree, flat can also be down. I think the companies that are thriving, they're growing. Typically, they are needing capital. They're needing more infrastructure. Very often, they could want to be on a strategic platform. You have founder issues. And that cocktail is very much about funding and fueling the continued good news with the right type of capital structure. We're also seeing on the other end of that kind of declining businesses still need a home. They still need a place to go. And, and what can help stem the decline or turn it around. So I think cocktails, great. I think the, the real recipe here is ultimately a scaled business revenue that can be profitable. Nobody wants to, in our industry, I don't think the Uber that really has no model for profitability works, um, as well as something that has kind of very often in the importance of a brand. So in the environment that we live in today, the strategics are using uh, acquisition, investment, incub incubation as a way to uh, innovate. Um, consolidation is happening in, in parts of the consumer landscape at large and has been doing so for maybe a decade now. It's now coming into uh, apparel, retail, et cetera. Do you see that as um, something that's going to continue? What, what's your take on I, the strategic? I think on the strategic, I think there are two big drivers. In businesses that are more flattish, the ability to get more volume and take costs out is driving the strategic transaction. The ability to really kind of um, enhance profitability and cash flow. The other thing that we're seeing on the strategics, and this is both in the retail landscape, in the beauty landscape, people are acquiring growth. Their, their own R&D, whether that's in-store customer acquisition, whether it is getting a new demographic customer, the ability to acquire kind of that revenue that you can't get on your own. But it used to be they would acquire you know, needle-moving uh, uh, revenue. Now they seem to be investing in much smaller businesses. Do you well, see that? I, we do. And I think the biggest reason and change for that is how social media how direct to consumer, if you have an exciting value proposition for the customer, 
partially what a lot of these younger companies, smaller companies that you're referring to are struggling with is they don't have the resources to really get behind it. A strategic can come in behind them and explode it much bigger, much faster, much more successfully. And so when you think of a Macy's who just invested in beta yep, and in they bought story, yep. I mean, do you think that's um, more to come with those kinds of companies? Should others be be, be learning from them? A absolutely. First of all, I think part of the reason it's more to come is that's very much about speaking to a different demographic, a different customer. You know, you can't just buy Google and Facebook ads. You got you to approach it a different way. I think also there's more to come because it's forcing a big, historic, larger organization to think differently. And in the case of a story, they, they acquired a business, but they also really acquired a talent. And what the founder brought was new thinking. And that's what a lot of times I think organizations are, are looking for, is new, new ways to think. When you think of, you do a lot of work in the beauty sector. I mean, Estee Lauder uh, has recently purchased quite a few very small businesses. Uh, how do you see that play into their world? I, again, I think that what is evolving in the beauty landscape is almost a perpetual rotation. Um, I often refer to Sephora and Ulta and look at the brands they're selling and the ones they rotate. What I think the Lauders, the L'Oreal's, the Shiseido's are doing is identifying white spaces and rather than trying to create a brand from scratch that's targeting a certain demographic or targeting a certain retail price point or a certain kind of uh, product pipeline, they can acquire it because what the strategic brings is the, the muscle, the bandwidth to really make it global to make it direct to consumer, to really get kind of uh, an infrastructure and a, a recruiting mechanism. So I think you'll see a tremendous amount of activity in the growth sector and beauty. What do you think about the specialty retail sector? I and mean, think of, for example, it's interesting, Old Navy, for example, is now spinning off and that was a company that was actually incubated intramurally. Going forward, do you think these big specialty so, stores will do that or have to invest or buy? Let me take that and maybe twist it a slightly different way. I think you definitely have the flavor du jour is to spin out something bright and shiny, be that Madewell, be that Old Navy, what's happening at VF in the separation of the denim versus uh, the rest. So I think that that's playing more to where in public stock investor demand is. To kind of your question, though, I think that um, uh, what, what you're really going to see at specialty retail, and this is what's shocking to me, you could probably acquire 10 million of mall-based retail today for two, three hundred million dollars. The question, and that's huge um, gross margin, it's huge dollars. The question is, you have to take a view on what's the future of the mall. I personally believe that in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years, we may have fewer malls, we're still gonna have malls. I don't believe that that um, distribution channels going away. I think there's an enormous contrarian opportunity in buying, but by that same token, I think in any business today, you have to be a pretty sharp operator. It used to be, I had a good store, I have a hundred of them, let's just get to a thousand. That doesn't work anymore. It's a conversation that needs to include e-com, other direct-to-consumer, investment in social, and maybe what used to be, need a thousand stores today may only need 600 stores. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help 
think, manage, and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies. We're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry, and it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. When you think about private equity and venture capital and the way these different entities in their own streams or their own lanes, as it were, are also converging on each other and the big private equity firms are investing or buying smaller companies, the, the, venture capital firms putting more money to work in later stage companies. How are you seeing that in your world, sort of the cross-pollination of all these pri- different private entities? Private equity got jealous of how venture capital was making such big returns. So they went earlier. Venture was attracting so much institutional money, they had to spend bigger checks. They went to the traditional private equity transactions. Completely, they're merged today. I traditionally think of venture capital as something that is probably pre-EBITDA, pre-cash flow, also growing at you know rates of 20%, 30% a month or a quarter. Private equity is probably growing 20 30% a year. It's probably EBITDA positive, but it's completely merged. So when, it's interesting thinking about strategics and then venture-backed businesses in the same conversation. How do you, from an exit perspective, and you're trading at three or four times revenue, suddenly try and sell yourself to a company trading at one times revenues? How do all these venture-backed businesses, other than going public, have an exit? You know, you mentioned earlier about moving the needle. If you're a billion-dollar strategic, you can't, and you trade at one times revenue, you can't buy a you know $500 million company at three times. It's the minnow and the whale. But you can overpay for a five, 10, $50 million revenue company, probably you're cash rich. One of the important comparisons I refer to all the time is Walmart can afford to buy a lot of digital brands because they have so much cash. Amazon, Facebook is doing a lot of acquisitions with equity currency. So they have different currencies, but I also think that they can afford to pay up, particularly if it's not an enormous scale relative to their own. Interesting. So retail in general and trends within the consumer retail industry, what are some of the things that are, you know, you're picking up that you that keep on pop- bubbling up maybe in your world that we should be taking a look at? I, I think that the biggest about. trend and issue we're ultimately talking about is changing distribution lanes. Uh, and that's not just direct to consumer and e-com, it's everything. It's, it's social um, influencers. I think beyond that, I think there are natural trends of um, healthy, good living is, is an important trend. I think millennials today care about the social justice and impact a brand is having. Yeah, mindfulness and consuming. You're seeing a lot of that. Um, beyond that, I think the other kind of trend that's back in vogue, it's not as much today about logos and, and that. It's about the value proposition. I find the important trend we talk a lot about is the customer is, is extremely smart and more importantly, he or she's informed. So having a sense that what they're buying represents value is really important. So when you look at media companies uh, who have reach and have a, a viewer uh, and then they are oftentimes trying to open their own sort of consumer marketplaces potentially online. You have retailers who are launching their own private labels, maybe even private brands. Uh, you have celebrities uh, who are, in effect, media uh, launching their own businesses. 
there's a convergence. Everyone used to play happily in each their, their side of the of the sandbox. Um, everyone's racing towards the center. Does what does that do to valuations? Media meets consumer. How, how does how do you separate? It, it, look, it makes it very confusing. I, I put everything on the Kardashians, but you know, fundamentally today, you know, Kendall Jenner can get a million five for ten posts over a period of time and what impact that can have on a brand. I think the worlds are completely converging. And I think that it's very much about where consumers today are getting information content and kind of uh, uh, brands and products. It's on their screen. And today, you know, that product placement in a movie, in a YouTube, the influencers today, the, the amount of product they're being sent I had heard the statistic, the average influencer today gets 40 products a day sent to them. So again, I think that it is a convergence, but I think it's for eyeballs. It's for, it's for screen time. So when, when the consumer is faced with all these options and all these new brands and all these wonderful ways to buy things, um, do you feel that in a would-be economic downturn, are there are certain brands, digital natives, do they do they do better? Do they do worse? I mean, what do you think about these, these new brands uh, in an environment where things are a little tighter? Well, I, I think that um, a, a secondary answer to your question, in that environment, do Google and Facebook ads get more or less expensive? Does the price of eyeballs and customer acquisition come down? I'm not sure it will. I think that will be relevant. To the core of your question, I think a lot of it comes back to that value proposition of the product. I think in a downturn, there are some brands that are incredibly well positioned. I look at um, you know, a tennis shoe brand called Greats. I think it's tremendous fashion, tremendous value. I don't think it's over-distributed or oversupplied in the market. Customers will still want that product. I think there are other kind of products and brands out there that if they're over-distributed, if the customer thinks it's really on the low end of the value proposition, some of those will get hurt. On the differentiation between kind of a true luxury product relative to something that's more opening price point, I, I don't know. I think the rich are still going to be rich. Um, and as a result, I think there'll still be demand. The frequency of purchase may drop, but I don't think the core amount of purchase will drop. So, so you spoke about greats as an example, uh, digital native brand. I mean, others like Mac Weldon and Chubbies and all these guys are rolling out uh, dozens of stores. Um, you'd, you'd think that you know rent was invented in Silicon Valley these days because you know rent is the new CAC. Um, is that something that, in your experience, or at least in the companies you're you're talking to, are they all trying to open retail in a in a cautious way? I think the key word there is cautious. I think they all want to have that experience. You look at some of the Bonobo stores, some of the Mack Weldon stores. Some of these stores are incredibly profitable and they're driving traffic and customer acquisition. I think the key is you can't have too many, you can't have too expensive of stores, and you just have to be disciplined about it. But I, I, I don't see today how a digitally first brand doesn't open a store and still be successful. I think you have to. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, what do you think about when you value businesses, this notion of valuing um, lifetime value, uh, weighing it against the cost of acquisition, looking at it from an omni-channel and a multi-channel perspective and, and how each channel helps the other and you have this rising tide, presumably. In, in, in our diligence, 
clearly there are digital KPIs that we you know, require, we look at. Lifetime value, customer acquisition, many of the things you're referring to. Those are just as important benchmarks as, you know, in a store, what four-wall economics do you need? You have to take it in in totality. The one statistic that we will, as part of diligence, ask every company, and I think it's relevant, is how many Instagram followers do you have? That is a relevant valuation metric. And Hmm. um, uh, we think companies need to continue to focus on that. Is there a a way of correlating uh, Instagram following to other matrices within the business so that the ratio between Absolutely. their following and their revenue is off or on or whatever? I think it's I think it gets uh, back to Instagram is correlated to that lifetime value, that customer acquisition cost, how much of it's organic versus paid type search. Absolutely, we're looking at a lot of those statistics. So when you look at Jet.com, you look at obviously Walmart, uh, which owns Jet, Amazon, you look at Alibaba, JD, all these marketplaces, but they also have their own plumbing and infrastructure. Um, That tide looks like it's still rising. How does that affect everybody else? Well, I think the person that's ultimately going to affect the most, and this will be the question in 20 years, how powerful is Prime? Amazon Prime today is an enormous. It's not the 800-pound gorilla. It's not the 8,000-pound gorilla. It's the 80,000-pound gorilla. But I think a lot of these other marketplaces are going to catch up. Doesn't mean that Amazon won't still be relevant, but I think there's plenty of market share to, to go around. So we're, we've been uh, at this for, for uh, half an hour now, Billy. And uh, last question, what do you... What do you think is um, the most interesting thing, exciting thing, something that you wish um, more entrepreneurs would think about? You know, give give some advice to the listener. Um, uh, I got to think about that. The first thought that came to mind is I find democratic or millennial luxury is really important. Luxury never goes away. And I think that that's a sector that continues to be underserved. A great thank you to Billy Sussman of Threadstone Advisors for joining us on the safari today. Always seeing the industry through his eyes is quite a revelation. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do share this with uh, colleagues and friends in the industry. And obviously, like it and subscribe. Thank you. Until next time.